our primary focus has been, we typically say like high velocity teams, which is the ones who care a lot about engineering productivity, the ones who care a lot about shipping code fast, right? And almost every company, at least, well, almost every new generation company wants to ship code fast. And that's where they're trying to spend resources as well as try to figure out like what are some of the more newer generation companies are doing. And that's been our core focus. Welcome to Pod Rocket. I'm Brendan, I'm your host, and I'm on the engineering team here at LogRocket. Joining me today is Ankit Jain. Ankit is the co-founder and CEO of Aviator. Uh, welcome to the pod. It's great to have you. Thank you. Thanks, Brendan, for inviting me. I'm really excited to be here. Great. Well, why don't you start by telling us a little bit about uh, yourself? Who are you? What's your, your history? And, and how did you end up as a founder of a dev tool startup? Absolutely. I uh, would love to. So um, I'm a software engineer by trade. I grew up in New Delhi. I came to US to join Google a decade ago. And uh, since then, I've been mostly working as a software engineer. Uh, I did uh, work at Google for a few years and went to startups. And in startups, I've led engineering in a lot of high growth companies, um, including Homejoy, Shippo, and Sunshine. Um, yeah, so I've, been, I've had about like 15 years of engineering career working in all sort of like front end all the way to C, like writing CSS all the way to kind of like doing systems design and like uh, building open SSH. So yeah, full stack in real terms. Uh, so it sounds like you've you've now done like both ends of the spectrum. You've been at like the very largest tech companies and at, at startups. Um, what do you feel like are, are the things you've taken away most from like being in, in very large and very small environments? I mean, so like there, there's, no, uh, there's no doubt that there's, uh, you know, in small startups, you get to do a lot more work and like have ownership. But I would say since I've started working in startups in the last 10 years, like my quality of engineering has certainly gone down. I was probably a lot better engineer when I was at Google. I learned a lot from really smart people. And I think uh, what I've enjoyed in startups is certainly the the velocity that you get in terms of like development and the impact that you can show in small teams in large companies i have cherished working with like really smart engineers but uh you know it feels again things move slowly compared to startups and is this your first time as sort of a founder or, or executive at a company uh to some degree yes i have uh dabbled with some ideas back in 2015 when I was a young entrepreneur, uh, but I definitely learned a lot during that time. Uh, I tried a few ideas and really understood what it means to do have product market fit. And also I learned a lot about like how, what it means to like do things that solve your own problems. Um, so what, what was it that finally sort of convinced you to, to take the leap and, and found Aviator and, and actually start a company? Yeah, I mean, like, since I've left Google, I've always pondered on, like, working in startups and, like, actually starting my own company at some point. But I also knew that I have to have a very strong, compelling idea that I strongly believe in before I go and do it. So, uh, so yeah, like, uh, after working about almost a decade in startups, I realized, like, after uh, that in every company, I'm actually like building same things, right? So companies like Google and Facebook have built these amazing uh, productivity teams internally. And like, this is something which I go and like have to build everywhere else in, the, uh, in every startup. 
So I can share a little bit about Aviator so that like at least uh, the audience have context. Yeah, I, I, I was going to say this is this is a perfect segue to talk about Aviator and and what you're building and, and what you're working on. So let's dive in. Tell us tell us what is Aviator and, and what do you do? Yeah, so Aviator is a, a YC backed startup. We started it last year in 2021. Uh, it's a developer productivity platform. It connects with your existing toolkit and runs automated workflows. So for example, like in large teams, uh, it can do like automatic merging. It can kind of like help you manage your stacking of PRs. We have a CLI for that. You can also like manage flaky test. And kind of like our philosophy behind building uh, Aviator has been, you know, like again, going back to Google and Facebook, like companies who spend a lot of time improving engineering productivity for teams, like every other company out there is looking to do the same, but like they don't have enough bandwidth to do so. So what we are trying to do is essentially provide engineer developer productivity in a box. And that's what we build Aviator on. And maybe kind of implied there, it sounds like also there are pretty similar patterns in how engineers at big companies like Google and Facebook manage their, their workflows. Is, is that generally true? Like, is there sort of, for people who have the bandwidth to build these developer tools, are there sort of consistent experiences? Yeah, absolutely. So in some ways, like, okay, so when we think about like developer velocity in a company, right? Like, so uh, in large companies, how you think about like building a feature, right? Given a spec, like how you think about building a feature and deploy that to production. You would imagine like most of the time uh, from an outside perspective that you will be spending most of your time just writing code. But in reality, in large companies, like majority of the time you're like, struggling with collaboration, where it's like, oh, like builds are failing, like my tests are not passing. And like, you know, it takes very long time to do code reviews, like everyone deals with that every day, right? And those are the challenges, which I have seen, like in the in some of the best companies, how they have like really turned around by building some of these tools internally. And what we are doing is democratizing, democratizing that for the rest of the world. Yeah, that's, that's really exciting. Um, I, I know you sort of touched on uh, a couple of the different features that you offer, but it would be cool if you talked sort of in more depth about some of the the key features that you've built in Aviator and like, what is it? What does it do? How does it improve the developer experience? And and like, what would what would I get out of using it as an engineer at say LogRock at a thirty person engineering team? Sure, yeah, absolutely. So uh, so some of the tools that we, though, okay, I think maybe even before we go into like specifics, it's helpful to understand like developer productivity space. So first, like, let's kind of like think about like how, uh, like, again, this term is used in many different ways. So we have like categorized it in four different, like it can be categorized in four different buckets. So first one is like how you think about like onboarding a developer and like kind of like developer setup, developer environments, those kind of things. The, the second category would be like knowledge sharing, debugging, like how do people like think about like, you know, once you are onboarded, like how do you get information about like debugging? And the third is collaboration, where it's like in a team, like how do you think about like collaborating with other developers, like how long it takes to kind of like push up the code. And fourth is typically reliability, which kind of like where a lot of companies go around like thinking about Dora metrics and like how quickly it is to kind of like identify issues and resolve them, right? So our core uh, product is focused around collaboration. So typically it will not be useful if you are an indie developer like working by yourself, but like in a team, the challenges are much more complicated and that's the problems you are trying to solve. And, and uh, typically for a team like LogRocket yours, uh, some of the things that could be super helpful is, uh, you know, like when you, if you, like one of the things that you would strongly want to believe it, like want to get as a, uh, as a, I would say like engineering principle 
is, um, you know, like having very stable builds. Because like, unless you have stable builds, you cannot really like think about having strong, like very high velocity for the team. To have stable builds, like you need to make sure one, your like tests are always passing and your like builds are always green, right? So these are the things that we primarily focus on. In terms of like our capabilities today, we have like the automated merging. What our system do in those cases is like, even for a team of like 20, 30 developers, we have a lot of companies with those sizes use our product. What would happen is like, instead of like merging your changes manually, just assign those changes or like PRs in GitHub to us. And we take care of like, you know, we become the gatekeeper. We take care of like, these are always validated with the latest changes before you merge. The advantages here are like, if you have like semantic conflicts, let's say two developers are working on the similar code base. If you change like method in one place, your CI may still pass, but eventually it may break the bill because you have validated on an older CI. For larger teams, now this becomes much more complex problem because now you need to merge 100, 200, even thousands of changes in a day. And uh, like the amount of CI you can run is uh, somewhat limited. You don't want to spend too much time in CI executions. That's where some of our more complex workflows come in. So that's kind of like, at least on the merging part. I think the other philosophy is around stacking PRs. And this is something which we have also learned a lot in uh, as evolution of code, especially if you work on bigger features, you would want to make sure you can break them down in more logical uh, constructs so that it's easier for people to review. And that's a, a philosophy which is like very much, very well promoted by Facebook internally, but like it's also kind of like catching grounds a lot lately. So we have provided like CLIs as well as some of these like automated backend workflows that make sure your PRs in stacked branches are always up to date. And last is around like managing flaky tests, which is like if you have like failures in your uh, in your systems or like if you have like unreliable tests, which is like passing and failing without any code changes, those are the places which we are able to identify and automatically suppress. So these are like the three core workflows that we build today. Enjoying the podcast? Consider hitting that follow button for even more great episodes. It sounds like your approach to handling flaky tests is designed to be sort of more framework agnostic and, and not specific to any language or, or test suite and more around identifying the, that connection between what could break the tests and, and what tests are actually breaking. That sounds really hard. Like, how, how have you approached that? Yeah, I mean, this is actually a truly a hard problem and we are taking a step-by-step approach. So one, yes, we have built initially a workflow where uh, as like most of the test runners today actually have capabilities to export results as JUnit. So uh, including Cypress, including, um, you know, like PyTest, uh, it doesn't have to be just Java test. So we actually like have built an engine to process those results and provide you with like identification of failing tests. Now, that said, we are also building a little bit more language-specific framework where you can also install the plugins in your test runners to not just automatically detect flaky tests, but also like rerun specific tests which have been detected flaky. So it works very well with our backend systems, so we can keep a track of all the flaky tests, and this uh, library that you can install can automatically just rerun the flaky test for you. So one of the things that I guess I would worry about as a developer having like flaky tests identified or, or suppressed is there's always that that story everyone has of the tests that broke in a completely different part of the code base that actually tipped you off to like the critical bug in, in your code. Uh, and I'm curious sort of 
how like what feedback from your users has been about this feature? Like, is it something people are excited to do- adopt? Is it something people are apprehensive about adopting? Uh, like, what? I think uh, that's a great question. In fact, like we had a big debate on Hacker News as well uh, a few months ago, which was around uh, like how people think about Flaky Test. And yes, like in some ways, the opinion is that people should not even have Flaky Test. And uh, the more important aspect about it is just detection rather than suppression. Uh, that said, like what we have learned, especially in larger organizations, is um, even if the Flaky Tests are detected, most in most cases, what a developer is going to do is comment out that flaky test and then create create like a Jira ticket to to resolve that. And essentially, like what we are doing is like reducing the human effort involved in like managing and tracking that. So our system is also like now going to connect with like this is something we are building is like you can connect with your Jira systems and it was going to like when it suppress a flaky test, it's also going to like um, you know create a ticket for it. So essentially, like those are like the places. The way we think about it is like many of these things that developers are like now just like you know learn to do manually over and over again. We're just kind of like reducing that effort and overhead for developers, right? So that's how kind of like we build many of these workflows for them. Yeah, it feels like kind of a pragmatic approach to to balancing the trade offs because you're right. Like at most companies, especially startups, you've got to move fast. Like you don't have time to chase every single flaky test in the code base most of the time. Right. And then and then everyone is frustrated about the flaky test because then they have to like manually rerun them, right? Like in fact, we talked to some of the companies who have like automatically set up to rerun on every failure, like the test 10 times, which is like, okay, now you're only not only like rerunning uh, flaky test, you're just rerunning everything, right? So there are like definitely some optimizations we can do there for, for saving time. Another thing I think... We've actually talked to a, a couple founders this year about stacked PRs. It's weird that it keeps coming up in, in the podcasts I do. They're they're really having a moment right now. I'm I'm curious if you could talk a little bit more, maybe for someone like me who's spent most of my career at pretty small companies. I do most of my work by making a PR to master and then merging it when uh, when I get a thumbs up on it. What you know? What are are some of the key differences that you get from using like a tool like Aviator and, and stacked PRs that maybe I wouldn't get if I just made a branch and then branched off my branch and and sort of went through that, I guess, out of the box Git workflow. So uh, a couple of things. I think one of the reasons why we are seeing a little bit increase in uh, startups doing stacked PRs is because there was this product by, maintained by Facebook called Fabricator. And uh, Fabricator got deprecated last year. So I think like many of the frustrated developers were like, okay, we need an alternative. And, and that's where kind of like some of these uh, products have come out. And that's one of the reasons we also ended up building because some of our teams we work with, they were like, you know, we need something uh, to replace that. And and uh, the, so to kind of like at least uh, compare with existing products, like one of the reasons why Aviator, why you would want to use like Aviator stack PRs, uh, CLIs and backend is because our core focus has been around build stability and kind of like, you know, automating merging. And most of the challenges that you have with stack PRs are around like syncing and merging. So essentially imagine that you create, like in your example, let's say you create a PR, uh, like this, let's just say kind of like you define the basic data models and now you're going to build a backend API for it, right? So you define the data models in one PR and then you kind of like extend that and create backend models for it, right? Then you go back and say like, oh, actually, there is some changes I need to do in the data model. So you go and like update your branch with the data models, but like now your uh, follow-in branches are 
stale, right? Like it doesn't have those changes. So what our system does is like you essentially like um, there's like a we use GitHub label, so you can assign a GitHub label to it, and it's going to like always make sure your branches are up up to date and synced. And we have like CLIs as well, so you can like if this this is probably fine when you only have like a couple of branches, but like when people use stack PRs, they'll they can even have like up to ten or twenty stacked branches. So this essentially becomes a nightmare to keep all these branches up to date and sync if you are working with multiple PRs or like multiple stack branches. And on top of that, if you are merging, you can kind of like merge partial of your stack and like rest of the changes get like, essentially we automatically like rebase those changes. So again, like it ties very well with like the our backend systems around like merging and syncing. So so I guess maybe it's, it's not as much the happy path of I make a PR and another PR off that and all of them are perfect and there's no changes. Unless you're like director of engineering where you're like admin superpowers and just like merge <laughs> without approval. Um, so I, I think another... You, you've mentioned sort of working with GitHub and then how you integrate with GitHub a couple of times. And I think this is a really interesting question that's kind of at the intersection of like product and, and tech, which is obviously meeting people where they are and getting you know teams that use GitHub can have an easy time adopting Aviator and, and using tools they're comfortable with. But also how do you balance that against the risk that like, GitHub decides stacked PRs is the next challenge it, it wants to take on. Like what are what are some of the pros and cons you've weighed is in like tightly integrating with with another platform? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think in some ways GitHub is become the default uh, platform for most of the developers. I mean, obviously, like there are still a lot of developers who use Atlassian and uh, like Atlassian's Bitbucket and GitLab as well. Like our main uh, you know, like one of our core responsibilities and like one of the core theses is around like integrating with like not just GitHub, but like all your different uh, tools out there, right? So GitHub does provide like open APIs, but what we build is essentially opinionated workflows, right? So for instance, like the example I was telling you about like suppressing flaky test, right? Those kind of things are tricky for GitHub to build just because like they are more of an open platform that expects like other people to build things on top of. Right. So in some ways, the way we think about it is like GitHub is essentially like the layer one of like, you know, providing source control, providing like basic capabilities around like code reviews. What we are doing is essentially building an automation layer on top of GitHub, which is essentially can now you can go in like future if, you, if a team like decides they want to move from GitHub to GitLab or like to Atlassian then they can just like, you know, swap out their source control. At the same time, they can continue maintaining some of these like automation workflows. So that's how kind of like we think about like, you know, it's not a competitive uh, space. It's more about like uh, building more abstractions and automations on top of existing infrastructure. It's Emily again, producer for PodRocket, and I want to talk to you. Yeah, you, the person who's listening but won't stop talking about your new favorite front-end framework to your friends, even though they don't want to hear about it anymore. Well, I do want to hear about it because you're really important to us as a listener. So what do you think of PodRocket? What do you like best? What do you absolutely hate? What's the one thing in the entire world that you want to hear about? Edge computing? Weird little component libraries? How to become a productive developer when your Wi-Fi is out? I don't know. And that's the point. If you get in contact with us, you can rant about how we haven't had your favorite dev advocate on or tell us we're doing great, whatever. 
And if you do, we'll give you a $25 gift card. That's pretty sweet, right? So reach out to us. Links are in the description. $25 gift card. Yeah. And so it sounds like, you know, there's a strategic philosophical difference you see between the problems that that you are trying to solve and, and that GitHub sees itself wanting to solve. Exactly. So like our, our thesis is all around like, you know, plug and play solutions, right? It's kind of like if you want to, so it's uh, like in some ways, like we compare many times UX to like WhatsApp, where it's like, you know, if you want to do text messaging, it's like my parents use it and it's like very easy to use, but there are like so many complex things you can do in it. You can do like real-time location sharing. You can kind of like, you know, uh, do uh, file sharing, all of those things, which are hidden features. So the way we think about it is like very simple plug and play interfaces for people. But if you want to go into like advanced mode, we have a lot more configurations and like things you can play around with, especially for as your team grows. Yeah, you're you're like right on the verge of, of also talking about something that I think we think about at LogRocket, which is like building a product for other developers to use. And, and on the one hand, you've got a ton of empathy for your users, right? Because in a way, you are your users. Like we're always in our, our own product using it. Um, but at the same time, you also have to make sure you're not sort of over-indexing on your own experience and your own preferences and, and actually building the thing that your your user needs you to give them. I'm curious how you've approached that. How much do you lean on like your experience working with these these types of systems and and how much do you base sort of what you're building on specific customer feedback? I mean, like this is also a very uh, interesting, like a running debate internally, because like many times we also talk about like user interfaces, right? For a developer, user interfaces are always uh, very opinionated. Because like in some ways, uh, the, many times we have an internal debate is like, oh, we just like provide a configuration file. Users being developers, they will know what to do and like they would be very comfortable playing with this. The other end of spectrum is you build interfaces, which is like almost like, uh, you know, I would even say like Slack, for instance, right? Where it's like most of the complexities are hidden by the developer or like for, for, for developers. But at the same time, if you want to do more complex things, you can. Right? So it's like you kind of like provide a UX experience where it's just like almost no code. You like drag and drop something or you specify some things in form fields and uh, it works. And I think like in some ways, this is like a distinction. We have to always think about it as, as a company building developer tools versus a developer themselves. We have learned is there is no perfect answer. You will find developers in all spectrums. Like one of the other things we try to do is like, you know, bridge the gap between a developer and a DevOps person today. Right. And like a DevOps person may be very comfortable doing a lot of complex things versus a developer like fresh out of school may not know all the complexities that go behind it. Right. So so what we try to do is essentially like provide two versions of our product, which is like, okay, if you want to just like get started, this is like you just like connect your GitHub repository and like, you know, specify two settings and you're done. Versus if you are like a team with thousand developers, you need to figure out like how do you optimize the configurations, turn every knob to make sure you can get the uh, best uh, best uh, best experience. Yeah, and and I think one of the other things that that brings to mind is there's kind of a, a central story here of like you said, democratizing tools that maybe people in in big tech companies, companies that have the resources to build internally, have had access to for a long time, but which have like not really permeated down to most of the, the rest of the, the dev market. And one of the questions I always have about this story is how much of that is sort of 
those tools being right for companies at just massive scale versus um, how much of that, you know, like will will small teams get the same value out of um, a, a tool like this and a product like this that, that Google will? Or is there some sort of scaling cliff you hit where some of these ideas don't scale down? Like, is that something you've thought about or, or run into? Right. I mean, that, that's a great question. And in fact, that's something we also think a lot about. Our primary focus has been, uh, we typically say like high velocity teams, which is like ones who care a lot about engineering productivity, the ones who care a lot about uh, having high, like, you know, shipping code fast, right? And like almost every company, at least, well, almost every new generation company wants to ship code fast. And that's where they're trying to kind of like, you know, spend resources as well as, uh try to figure out like what are some of the more like newer generation companies are doing. And that's kind of like has been our core focus. But that said, yes, like I think the collaboration challenges that we are solving, it has like almost like a exponential graph in some ways where uh, if you go certain like beyond a certain point, like let's say if you have over 100 developers, these pain points will be so severe that you're like, it's a, it's a death by a thousand cuts. Versus in smaller startups, like, you know, this happens like once in a while, maybe like your builds break like twice a week. Fine. Like it's no big deal. Like maybe use based like two, three hours of developer time. That's about it. Like, but I think if you think about like saving 10% of developer time in a team of hundred person, like you're essentially like saving them 10 developer worth of salary. Right. And that's kind of like how we have at least thought about it today. And again, like I think at scale, we do expect like kind of like as we build more and more complex workflows, we will be able to like scale for several thousands of developers over time. I think like the other question that you were asking is like, is it going to be equally valuable for startups? I would say today, probably not because it's uh, still something that you only use in teams. It's not something as you use as well as a single developer, but like we're also working and building some of these capabilities. Like for instance, flaky test is a problem which will happen as long as you're writing tests. Now, if your company doesn't believe in writing tests, like it may not be useful, right? So like if you're starting as like a two-person company, probably it's not going to be as helpful. Like what the challenge we are solving is how do we think about teams which are collaborating? And especially if you think about it, like in the last two years, the collaboration and work has changed completely, right? So most of these companies are also trying to figure out what does it look like going forward? Like clearly everyone knows remote work is not going away. So that means it's like now people need to figure out like what does asynchronous collaboration and what does developer velocity, developer productivity in this new world look like? Yeah. So you you said a little bit about today, but I guess that that prompts me to ask, what's tomorrow? What's on the roadmap? Uh, what what sort of features are you working on that you're sort of most excited about? Yeah, absolutely. So the way we have thought about it is like uh, this is also sort of like has been our philosophy as a company is we started by building tools. Now we have like a product, which is Aviator that kind of like helps you solve build problems. And we are transitioning that into a platform. The way we think about the platform is, you know, every company has slightly different workflows on how they kind of like manage their PRs, manage their, work, uh, manage their testing infrastructure, manage CI, CD, all of those things. What we are doing essentially is building, uh, uh, you know, a workflow engine, which is essentially like you can come and like create your own workflows on top of, right? So essentially, if let's let's take an example, right? Like so, we have some teams who are like, oh, we actually don't care as much as much about breaking bills. We care about like you know being able to more changes faster. But if it breaks once in a while, we want like ways through which we can do automatic rollbacks, right? So those kind of things. Now you can come and like you know define your own. 
uh, workflows and build on top of our systems to actually like uh, take actions. And similarly, like you can do different things. Like say, let's say if you're using some sort of like a security detection platform or like product which identifies some sort of security vulnerabilities, you can use our workflows to essentially like either automatically like create changes to uh, like identify and like you know automatic uh, roll back those security uh, issues. Or you can even notify certain people about like, hey, this is happening and like these are things you can do. So the way we think about it is like there's data that lives in all different systems. There's information sitting in your GitHub, in your uh, in Datadog or like kind of any other da- developer tool that you're using. You're just like bringing, essentially like building this engine to take actions on top of it. Uh, well, before we go, I also wanted to talk a little bit about the experience you've had of, of growing Aviator as a, a company. Um, I know you guys closed your seed round earlier this summer. I think you raised 2.3 million. So congratulations. That's a huge milestone. This is also, I, I think, an interesting time to be starting a, a company and to be raising money. I think there's been a ton of discussion in tech and VC circles around the market, the cost of capital, how investors are thinking very differently about what they're looking for from companies now than they were maybe two or three years ago. Um, I'm curious what your experience was like talking to investors and, and raising money in this market. Do you feel like it was noticeably harder or, or different than what you've seen other companies experience in the past? I mean, absolutely. The the difference, I would say, so we went to Y Combinator last summer and like the difference in investor mindset then versus now is completely different. But at the same, so I think what has happened now is almost every company is forced to think about uh, business metrics and business outcomes. And that's where kind of like we differentiated ourselves a lot because from the beginning, like you've actually wanted to create a product that we can also monetize. So uh, from the beginning, we kind of like, we used to charge like very little, but we kind of like always thought about revenues as well, especially like given our focus on larger companies and like the problems that we are solving for them, like, you know, those kind of things we have always kept in our mind. At the same time, we do understand like, you know, we are a startup ourselves and like there are like smaller companies who may not have uh, the capacity to pay. So we are still offering free products for like smaller teams. And the expectation is like, you know, somewhat similar to how many of these other companies like Stripe also grew, helps uh, like, you know, get some people use, start using our product, you know, like build those habits and over time grow with that. So uh, in terms of like investors, I think we certainly uh, uh, lucked out quite a lot. We have like some of those most prominent investors in the Valley, including like Lenny Ratchetsky, who runs uh, a very famous uh, product podcast as well and, and the newsletter. We have Elard Gale, who's like one of the early investors in Stripe. Then we have like some of the other like founders from like Retool, Instabugs, so, like some of the developer tools as well. So we've been like very lucky and like those people also act as our mentors as well. So we learn a lot from them. Yeah, and I think having, you know, having the story of, of who your customer is and, and what your market is from the beginning feels like you know, something that maybe maybe was less demanded of, of startups a few years ago and, and now feels like you just need to get, to get in the door is to have a clear idea of, of what the business actually is. Um, exactly. I guess the, the other question I'm, I'm curious about is sort of what are, your, what are your plans for this fundraising round? Are you planning to hire? Like how are you sort of turning this into growth for the business? Yeah, absolutely. So we are definitely hiring engineers. So one of the things is the kind of product we are building Almost every engineer we hire comes with a mindset of like being a DevOps engineer because a lot of things that we do requires, in some ways, we call it plumbing, which is like, you know, we know that data exists in all of these silos. We need to like connect and make sense of it. 
And I think like that requires a little bit of like DevOps ethos. And we definitely see a lot of people excited about the things we are working on because one of the best things about uh, working in developer tools, which you probably also know, Brandon, is if you're solving your own problems, you will definitely like resonate with certain developers who are really excited about it. And that's how we have like seen and hired people in our team so far. So we have like three engineers in our team, um, all come from like, you know, big and small engineering backgrounds as well as like running their own startups. And they're like really excited about solving these problems. And uh, we have also like brought in one of the marketing person recently. And and I guess that that also is kind of an interesting thing to think about is, you know, when you're finding engineers at an early stage company, it's it's really challenging, right? You're making a, a huge bet on, on each one of these people. And so how do you think about balancing, you know, mindset, interest in the product, specific experience with technologies? Like what do you weigh when you're looking for really early engineers? That's a great question. So one of the things that I've actually learned uh, in the last one year is the people who are uh, most successful in early stage startups are the ones who really believe in the mission, right? So as a developer, the most important thing, thing we look for is like, are you really excited about building developer tools, right? We are not like a, you know, like one of those like sexy crypto companies. We are building developer tools for the world and actually like solving problems for developers worldwide. So we look for people who really are passionate about it. And many times we see them in their background that they've worked in like developer tools internally in other companies. So that kind of like also helps us as uh, using it as a mentor. Well, Ankit, thanks for joining us. Uh, this was a, a great conversation. Really enjoyed hearing about sort of the startup world right now and and what you guys are working on. Um, and I'm excited to check out Aviator a little bit more. Um, is there anything else you want to add or do you want to point our listeners? Uh, where can they find you guys online? Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much, Brandon, for having me. This was a blast. I really enjoyed it. And uh, you're an amazing host. So thank you so much. Um, for, uh, for, the host, for the folks who are listening in, uh, please go check out aviator.co, aviator.co, our website. Uh, it, it is like self-serve. You can sign up and uh, play around with it. If you have any feedback, you can always uh, email me at ankit at aviator.co. And I'm happy to, you know, jump on a call, like help, uh, kind of like, uh, yeah, help you whatever way I can. So thank you so much. Uh, really appreciate you. Uh, appreciate uh, you having me here. All right. Thank you. And we'll see you online. All right. Have a good day. Hey, this is Emily, one of the producers for Pod Rocket. I'm so glad you're enjoying this episode. You probably hear this from lots of other podcasts, but we really do appreciate our listeners. Without you, there would be no podcasts. And because of that, it would really help if you could follow us on Apple Podcasts so we can continue to bring you conversations with great devs like Evan Yu and Rich Harris. In return, we'll send you some awesome PodRocket stickers. So check out the show notes on this episode and follow the link to claim your stickers as a small thanks for following us on Apple Podcasts.